Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talk about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm your host for today, Connor Watts, our automotive and battery analyst, and I'm joined yet again by our editor and hydrogen analyst, Bogdan Evermouton. Hi, Connor. Thank you. And I'm joined again by our solar analyst, Andreas Fontenot. Uh, good morning. Well, this week we're going to talk about the support for nuclear coming out of COP28 and uh, what that may mean for the future of the industry amidst renewables which continue to fall in price while nuclear does not. We're going to talk briefly about our new solar module price report and how price components within the solar industry are going to evolve in price in the coming year under increasing efficiencies. And finally, we're going to touch on the IRA's long-awaited policy guidance as released by the U.S. Treasury last Friday and what this means for the battery industry and companies operating within it. These are a uh, selection of stories from our weekly issue published Wednesday. To find this, you go to rethinkresearch.biz, that's .biz, you hit energy and you're there. Anyways, let's just get on ahead. Bogdan. Yes. This COP28, I've mostly seen negative things coming out of it other than the loss and damage fund progress <laughs> nuclear what exactly has happened here and uh, what can we expect to see from it yeah so long story short 22 countries i think signed this ministerial declaration which is aiming to triple uh, energy generation from nuclear between now and 2050 and we don't think that will happen uh, mostly because of costs I went through the declaration itself. Uh, It's mostly vague statements of intent, mostly aimed at increasing investment behind nuclear, promoting it, promoting technological advancements, things like that. So it's it's not clear cut targets. It's it's all uh, it's all a bit of big talk essentially. But it gave me the excuse to kind of look into nuclear, which is something that we do cover from time to time. We keep tabs on. The thing with nuclear is, like I said, it's too expensive. Uh, the current nuclear capacity uh, installed today in the world uh, is quite old, so uh, it takes a lot of money um, to refurbish it and to keep it going to 2050. So that's um, uh, that's a bit of a, a money sink when it comes to efforts put into nuclear. And then when, you t- when you're looking at the kind of new emerging technologies, you're talking mostly SMRs, small modular reactors, which are meant to be smaller in size and capacity. They are built somewhere in a, in a factory and they just get transported and then installed wherever the, the, the energy needs to be generated. So they differ from the typical nuclear plants. In that aspect, they'll be safer, they'll be more efficient, but like I said, they're small in capacity, but they're extremely, extremely expensive, and they've been hit really hard by inflation in the last couple of years. So a lot of American companies, SMR companies, are struggling to, to get off the ground. SMRs are usually around, what, a couple hundred megawatts, if I remember correctly? Yeah, Whereas large nuclear plants tend to be a couple gigawatts on that. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. You're looking at 300 megawatts electric, a bit more thermal for an SMR, whereas um, hmm. nuclear plants can be a couple of gigawatts uh, in size, in capacity, yes. We should say that basically everything has been hidden by inflation with regards to the renewable energy industry. Well, for the weird exception of battery materials, which is nice for me. SMRs haven't also had the compounding effect of increasing efficiencies to kind of negate that increase. And so it's 
taking too long to commercialize? What are the kind of commercialization timelines for SML companies as of right now? I've seen a lot of delays, particularly I think NewScale was one of the most recent ones. Yeah, NewScale is the big one from the US. Um, they had a project that essentially was supposed to cost um, $5.3 billion. And it jumped to 9.3 billion after the COVID inflation. 80%. Yeah. So that's that's a huge jump. The IRA is uh, pumping some money into nuclear. They have about 370 billion aimed at refurbishing old plants. So, again, this just kind of gives an idea of the scale of investment required by nuclear to even just, you know, be supported to kind of like keep the capacity that's online today going, essentially. So what are we saying nuclear is going to do? I believe it was roughly double. Yeah, just the old... I suppose it's triple. Yeah, it would fail to just about double. So it would be just under uh, maybe like 1.8 times what it is today and something like that. And most of that will come from China because China is keen on on building more and probably will to to help decarbonize by 20... Well, so that would be its way of replacing its massive coal fleet, won't it? Um, yeah. What are the odds that this is just effectively something that's been pushed through by a nuclear lobby at COP28? Because this seems like the COP of the incumbent technologies, as it were, with it being hosted by the UAE and then pushing the fossil fuel <laughs> side of things. I've seen reports of companies and delegates attending CRB28 just to make fossil fuel supply and kind of demand deals, offtake agreements almost. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was the work of a of a lobby group because, uh, like I said, it was signed by twenty two countries and their governments. But I think that's where the problem actually is. I think a lot of governments are a bit confused when it comes to the energy transition because, as we know from you know the example from from back here from from the UK, they don't really have uh, science degrees or anything like that, so they rely on. A lot of people whispering what to do in their ears, and uh, you know it's it's only fair to expect them to get confused at times. I think it's mostly countries want to, especially the countries that that utilize nuclear today. They want to basically keep all options open and invest a bit into everything, instead of doubling down on wind, the solar, depending on on their location. So you're finding it's mainly kind of nuclear incumbents to the. <laughs> Invested in keeping nuclear afloat, as it were. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I included a uh, a map of like all the all the countries that signed the declaration. I included that in the in the article, and yeah, it's mostly Eastern European, below Eastern and Central European. Um, they're already utilizing nuclear today. France, uh, the US, so your usual suspects. Very interesting. Well, even with that level of support, if we're not expecting uh, too much of an increase, then, well, what does that really mean for the nuclear industry? Then, you think it's always been an industry that's been heavily, heavily supported by government subsidies. Mm-hmm. Is that an, is that a complete and utter necessity for it to continue in its current form, or at all? I mean, probably. And I mean, that's that's true with everything, you know, even gas and coal benefited from a lot of government support because energy is just too expensive uh, and it's just how it's always been and, you know wind and solar and all all the renewable uh, technologies are benefiting from it nuclear will will get some money but like i said most of this money will be used to kind of support and refurbish what's what's today and china will build some more and then globally that the needle will will keep going up but 
in the context, I included another kind of graph of the ratio of renewables to 2050, the way we see it. And given the upgrade in solar and wind, hydro and nuclear, which are the, uh, or at least were the leading kind of renewable zero carbon technologies up until 2020, hmm. that will drop dramatically. Maybe this is just me being a bit too much of an optimist, but you hope that the subsidies do get redistributed outside of the whole political influence and lobbying side of things towards the technologies with the scope for efficiency improvements and cost reduction, because that is nuclear's problem. You can't get onto the kind of, you can't get onto the Wright's law process of doubling your kind of deployed capacity and reducing price by a function of however much, because the deployment process is so um, annoying kind of regulatorily speaking to be able to get through and then the inflation takes up all the all the raw material costs and the budgets never match and it's a bit of a mess it's much more complicated than it's worth particularly with the various intermittency mitigation methods that are popping up from hydrogen to batteries to vpps to other things that we follow that we think will take over I feel Hopefully like there's something a bit strange about these Western LCOE figures of like oh, $100 per megawatt hour, because it's just in the sense that I'm sure that's not the same number in in China or Russia. Like, I'm sure it's cheaper there, right? Nuclear. It will be, yeah. Mm. But that'll so like, just be based on kind of raw material costs. If we did it in... Okay, I see. If there was a way to convert the 100 megawatt hour to a purchasing power parity conversion then it would be roughly similar. Oh, okay. But it's a, it's, a, it's a currency thing, isn't it, in part? It's a currency and kind of local cost. Um, Pay one-third as much, get one-third as much in your salary. Yeah. Anyways, let's move on. Um, Andres, solar module price report. It's not going to any numbers, but <laughs> um, how... Okay, so what does it cover? Well, there actually are a couple of numbers in the issue, but you can read them if you want to, dear listener. Um, so what it goes into real detail on are really the subjects I was already quite familiar with, which is polysilicon. I mean, that's just rather easy to cover. Uh, high purity quartz, silver paste, and uh, wafer technology, including crucibles, and as well as just an overview of the market share of different cell technologies, because you have to know that and how powerful they're going to be in terms of efficiency to know how... Uh, how much cost you pay, uh, how, how many dollars you pay per kilowatt of solar panels uh, from now through to 2040. That's the, that's the report, is what will the solar module cost for the next 17 years and exactly why. Now, it, the report doesn't actually go in... Well, that was 17 as opposed to 70. Oh, yes, 17 there. On 7. 2040, yes. Although, you know, I'm starting to wonder if you could just keep drawing the same downward trend for 70 years as well. Because, um, you know, one of the one of the things I found in this report, just for starters, is that there's this constant uh, reduction in wafer thickness, also diamond wire th uh, thickness, which also reduces kerf losses when you're cutting the wafers out of the uh, ingots from the Krausky process. And so the usage rate of polysilicon just go goes down and down and down constantly, uh, quite dramatically, I think more than halving, even before you get into perovskites. And what that means is actually the existing, we actually have overcapacity now, uh, even for the demand of polysilicon in like 2035. Um, and that's with a fairly uh, aggressive forecast of like 1,300 gigawatts installed in, in the mid-30s each year. And even then there's polysilicon overcapacity. Yeah, even right now. Like the Chinese just went 
mad. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, as, as they, 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 they acknowledge it. They, they know they do this. They, they talk explicitly about how they have the phase of like high profit shortage rapidly over. They intentionally go for the boom and bust capacity. cycles. Yeah, and mm-hmm. then they intentionally they actually glorify the bust cycle You've got the as same in there, don't you? <laughs> switching from quantity to quality. They call it, you know, it's like they it's like they actually want to have a process where there is intense price competition, almost no margins, and it just kills most of the companies in the su- survival of the fittest process. In a weird way, that's very capitalist. <laughs> it's very just you just allow the most inefficient companies to die off in an artificially created kind of ecosystem of low oxygen, as it were. Very interesting. Yeah. Do continue. Well, I mean, I don't want to spill too many of the mm. the crown jewels here because um, probably yeah. the, the biggest part of this report, I don't know if it should have been, but it ended up being uh, analyzing. Um, High purity quartz supplies, but also the demand and how that turns out in terms of crucibles and crucible size. Because there's some interesting details in here about the fact that your typical G12 wafer, and, and if it's not typical of the industry yet, it, it will be, um, is 220 millimeters side length square. And so you can actually do some calculations about how many of those squares you can fit into a 28 inch crucible, which is the new fairly big size. And that is one source of another constant improvement in efficiency in like most of the uh, supply chain, because they're making the crucibles bigger past a certain point, 28 inches to be specific, when you're melting the polysilicon in a huge, one of these huge Shukrowski crucibles, if you make it much bigger than 28 inches diameter, you start to get convection currents, which basically ruins the monosilicon ingot. So they are now building superconducting magnetic fields more powerful magnetic fields to prevent the convection currents. And that allows the bigger the bigger crucibles, which allows um, cramming more squares per unit area. Like instead of, instead of cutting squares out of the circular cross section equal to two thirds of the total area, and then having to refeed or discard the, the offcuts, it's more like 80% when you scale it up really big. Uh, and that's just one random, very quite technical uh, example of an efficiency gain. There's just so many of these efficiency gains lurking. Uh, in, in all these steps. And even if nothing else changed in the specific step-by-step manufacturing process of the uh, solar module, and there are some things, there are some elements that I don't really see much price change, like glass. I mean, we already know how to make glass or like aluminum frames or what. Well, there's a few like that, like industrial mm-hmm. silicon is very simple. So it's cost, I don't expect to change. Uh, even if all of those stay exactly the same, the at the cell level, the efficiency can still improve by a few percent, which makes everything else cheaper on a per kilowatt basis. And then you get perovskites, which of course rather sadly <laughs> negates, in a sense, all of this uh, detailed silicon work I, I wrote into it. But uh, yeah, it's a fairly detailed report. There's uh, a couple of topics that I'll have to return to to actually enter it. Uh, the less it's interesting, an incredibly detailed report with regards to price and such and the increasing efficiencies, but the expectations up until the lifespan of kind of this scaling solar industry demands right so and, and if any of the listeners are kind of involved within the solar supply chain in particular this is a very very important report with regards to efficiency gains and the effect on supply chain yeah it's, it's got some details that you definitely won't get from other people exactly we don't see anybody else looking into high purity quartz sand for instance or particularly crucibles and such so focusing on that hopefully it's of use to plenty of people Moving on.
So the U.S. Treasury has finally, finally released guidance with regards to the Inflation Reduction Act's 30D subsidy guidance. That's the Clean Vehicle Tax Credit. And it means that a foreign entity of concern is any company either owned by or partially owned by 25% or more by a covered nation. That's China, Russia, Iran, or North Korea. In the raw material space, Russia's slightly relevant, but they're under heavy sanctions right now, so not really. Um, this is effectively just anti-China policy, as, as mentioned, because North Korea and Iran, surprisingly, don't have the manufacturing capacity to make a dent in this industry. And what it means is a lot of the companies that have taken off-tech agreements and technology licensing agreements are going to have to go back to the drawing board again and say, okay, well, this is what we can do. It's mostly just a rejiggering of internal agreements between companies that will be required. So companies like Ford or Tesla might have to go back to the drawing board. I've not been able to find anything specific on technology licensing agreements and IP, but that'll hopefully be kind of clarified within the next few weeks. The provenance rules are were set to come in from next year of, um, I believe, 60% manufactured in the US or friendly countries to be eligible for subsidy and 50% sourced in terms of the minerals from a friendly country. However, in and amongst that, you can't have more than 25% ownership of any Chinese companies. If we look at high nickel ternary batteries, that's NMC, NMCA, that sort of thing, you can broadly work with Japanese and South Korean companies with their existing supply chains, assuming that there's a free trade agreement with the US or a bilateral agreement that's already been signed in terms of eligibility for the IRS subsidies. But with LFP, that's a little bit more difficult because the IP is primarily Chinese and as is the supply chains. There are a couple companies that are going to do very, very well out of this. I believe that there's a Canadian company called First Phosphate, which uh, yesterday or the day before signed an MOU with Lithium Americas to um, potentially develop a well, an LFP slash LMFP, which is adding manganese, cathode active material plant in the US. They have IP related to LFP batteries, which is rare amongst companies that aren't heavily influenced by China. And then there's Mitrochem. They have a partnership with GM. They already had a relatively large increase in stock price as a result of that deal recently. So I wouldn't recommend that bet. The general problem here, though, is going forwards, there's going to need to be an increase in the sourcing requirements, and they increase by 10% per year. This is likely to be delayed until 2026, until it actually matters and takes effect, because the US government is considering imposing a, a pause on the rules actually coming into effect and mattering for companies immediately. Thankfully, that's only going to be until 2026. From that point onwards, well, also this is only for the mineral sourcing requirements, not for the manufacturing. The 50% mineral sourcing requirements will likely come into effect from 2026. The manufacturing requirements will come in from next year. So companies that are still importing batteries from China will struggle to qualify for full subsidies. Ford is importing LFP batteries, I know that. Um, otherwise, a lot of companies are importing South Korean and Japanese batteries at the moment, which should be eligible. How this evolves is interesting, because 
when it comes to the high nickel ternary batteries, both the cobalt supply chains and the nickel supply chains, which are major kind of, which are the two other significant value components within an NMC battery, are heavily, heavily indented into the Chinese ownership. You'd struggle to find a nickel refinery in Indonesia, which is where most of the nickel in the world is being processed, that is owned by, well, that isn't owned by a, at least in part, by a Chinese company or using Chinese technology. It's a similar case with cobalt, because you have major players like CMOC in the DRC who are importing cobalt concentrate or cobalt sulfate uh, into China to then be refined into higher purity battery grade stuff and to then be used in batteries. One very interesting part of this is that recycling is a good way to get around the problems issue. From what I could tell from the text, it said that any batteries recycled in the US, it didn't say where the batteries had to come from. It could be Chinese batteries recycled in the US. I will have to check this and I'll probably do another piece on this next week once I'm more certain. Is that batteries recycled in the US will count as provenance towards US made. So will companies just import batteries, immediately crush them up, remake them with a small amount of material from the from the US or that at least isn't owned by a Chinese company to be able to get a 90% battery? No, because that's ridiculous. But it's a good thought experiment of you're converting you're converting the battery from being a Chinese battery to being an American battery by destroying it. I still don't have any serious hope for manuf- for recycling outside of manu- outside of manufacturing scrap as the primary source of recycled material. But it's um, a good way to get around the material sourcing requirements, and it will prove useful for some companies, particularly if you can get a kind of dedicated offtake agreement with a recycling company that then feeds back into your own supply chain. If you can make a closed-loop system, then it's a good way to guarantee your own supply, as it were. So are you talking about um, recycling there because you're skeptical about like non-Chinese refining capacity being developed? Yes. So um, this is more so an issue for Europe. In the US, there are a couple of companies developing refinery capacity, but it is coming along quite slowly. It's less of refining capacity and more the intermediary cathode and active material manufacturing. So we're seeing that coming online far too slowly. But at the same time, it's more about the offtake agreements and who's owned by who. And there's going to be surcharges on this, so it's not going to be low cost. Any companies that are operating within the space right now understand that if they have the right assets to comply with IRA subsidies, they can charge a fair amount more than competitors who don't have that. Not quite up to the cost of the subsidy, but you know that's your potential. So while that capacity is being developed, China is still developing far more capacity than it needs in the same way that it's doing for polysilicon, as mentioned earlier. By doing that, it's keeping its price low, and what I'm looking into right now is how much lower can China keep the price and improve in efficiencies faster than the West, to the point where these subsidies don't matter. Because $7,500 for an EV battery, it depends on the size of the battery and the chemistry, but with American vehicles being between 100 kilowatt hour and 200 kilowatt hour batteries, you can have a battery that costs about 25 grand. 
if raw materials are in a very bad spot. At the moment, it's more like 12. So it's like 60% of the cost of the battery. And maybe, um, uh, I want to say, 25 to, well, 20, 15 to 25% the cost of the vehicle, assuming it's still going to be eligible for IRA subsidies. Because there's um, vehicle price caps on that. So you can't buy a electric kind of Lamborghini and expect it to qualify for a tax credit. So there's a level at which with regards to raw material prices and China outscaling the West in terms of manufacturing capacity, particularly in low-cost electric vehicles and um, improving capacity in the more supply chain-friendly stuff, where the subsidy isn't actually going to matter that much. Because at the same time, we're seeing companies in Europe producing the small, kind of mid-sized SUVs or compact cars even, which seem to be a dying breed nowadays, particularly with EV manufacturers, and having batteries which cost less than the which cost less than the subsidy. <laughs> wow. Obviously it doesn't apply in the EU because it's new because it's a US subsidy. But if the US follows, then we're into very interesting market dynamics in terms of EV pricing. So what's the end verdict? Is this a it sounds like it's an ambiguous situation in re- in regards to keeping out China. It's going to do a good job from 2026. The manufacturing capacity side of it isn't that difficult to develop, and it largely already is. The main problem of that at the moment has been labor strikes. So up until recently, Ford had... Actually, no, I think Ford might have cancelled its plant, or at least put it on hold, with CADL in Michigan. Whereas Stellantis and GM are still going pretty much full steam ahead in the US. Companies with manufacturing capacity in the US already, Tesla, GM, kind of the incumbents there, even Toyota, they'll easily be able to make the um, 3750 side of the subsidy. That's I'd be quite surprised if companies don't make that. Because you already have a vast majority of the um, of the domestic supply chain already in place for electric vehicles when it comes to the manufacturing side of it. It's aluminium frames and electric motors. It's not that difficult, especially because um, there's lots of um, automatics in the US, if I remember right. But the critical mineral side of it from 2026 is going to be a headache for a lot of companies, particularly those operating on high nickel ternary batteries, because nickel and cobalt are very difficult to source from ex-China sources. And the ex-China sources that exist know that they can charge higher. So there will be environmental surcharge, they'll probably call it. But it's an IRA surcharge because we can. Additional cost. So they're increasing their profit margins with the help of the IRA because otherwise the the resources wouldn't be being developed anyways. That's how they exist in the first place. And when you say ex-China, China itself doesn't like mine ore, it, but it has all the refining. So you mean... Refined. Well, it mines all the graphite, but yes. Okay. So would, would Indonesia itself end up hosting refineries? Indonesia itself already does own refineries, but they're not owned by Indonesian companies, by and large. There's a mm-hmm. few, but there's significant Chinese ownership within the Indonesian nickel refineries. So they're still going to be classified as a foreign entity of concern because they're because they're either majority or significantly over 25% by Chinese companies. Now, the thing here is, will companies then question 
okay, if we just reduce our stake, but also get another company that isn't Chinese, but it's owned by China in some kind of legally ambiguous way to reduce the share and to take up our ownership share. In that. Say if you hand it to a trust that's like based in the Cayman Islands or something, then it's not owned by a Chinese company. It's still minority owned by a Chinese company, but so is every company through owning stocks and such. So you're avoiding the provenance rules in that regard. There's loopholes. But it's up to the Treasury to be able to plug those and to maintain and retain the levels of efficiency seen in the IRA so that it's not benefiting China. That's the main goal of the IRA. It's to develop US manufacturing capacity and a French manufacturing capacity and resource mining while shafting China. That is its that is its modus operandi. And this guidance goes further to screwing China, even though there are loopholes which need to be filled. I believe Manchin's already kind of, I don't want to say raising the alarm, because that's possible, but he's already... Um, like Sticking the, the knife in? For... That's usually what I would think of with him. <laughs> um, no, he's um, looking to... This is one of the rare cases where I agree with him, in that you need to be able to plug these loopholes so that China isn't properly benefiting from these, if you want US-based manufacturing capacity and resource manufacturing capacity to properly increase. Hmm. Because otherwise, it's as if the subsidy doesn't exist because China also does it and they still out-compete you. The US and Europe both know that they can't compete on price, naturally. So you have domestic subsidies, you have EV probes, you you already have... Punitive tariffs on Chinese EVs, 27%, which is very, very high for a vehicle. That's like seven or eight grand minimum. But it's certainly not enough by itself even. No, it isn't. And that's where the IRA subsidies come in. Mm. You You have the punitive tariffs and then you have the IRA subsidies. That's a minimum of like 15 grand of price difference between US vehicles and Chinese vehicles for the kind of middle to low um, income EV segment, which is sub 60 grand. That's 25% of the cost of the vehicle (laughs) covered by US intervention. For a free market country, uh, that's a lot of government intervention. Um, But if it works for the US, it'll work for the US. That's the main thing. India brought in this 25% tariff against Chinese cells and 40% against Chinese modules. And that was just about enough to keep them out sort of sort of halfway for a bit. But then the price just dropped. And I think that now it's like there isn't a tariff because it's just so cheap. The, the base price is so cheap. It's, it's, it's remarkable. That's what we need to look at. How much mm. will China increase its manufacturing capacity and how much will cost reduce to the point where will these subsidies matter? We'll be keeping an eye on that regardless. So let's uh, have a quick look at a couple of the short items from this week's issue. Something that I saw recently is that Russia's Nornickel is reportedly teaming up with some of its Chinese customers, because they don't have active tariffs on it, in developing catalysts for the new energy industry, which use palladium. Now, Something that we touched on, I believe, last week or the week before is that Heraeus and another company were developing a ruthenium catalyst for the hydrogen industry that replaces pa- that replaces platinum and palladium. What we're seeing effectively now is the P2 
people who are um, invested in palladium doing well, trying to find another um, industrial use case for it now that demand is falling off a cliff. For context, palladium just hit a five-year low because a vast majority of its industrial demand comes from the catalytic converter industry and is related to internal combustion engine manufacturing. Electric vehicles don't have those because they don't produce tailpipe emissions that need to be reduced so as to not completely and utterly ruin air quality. That's been quite bad for palladium by itself, but since platinum is cheaper and does functionally the same job, companies have already been shifting towards platinum as the primary catalyst within catalytic converters. This is a further, um, this has led to significant price, price falls in the metal because the jewelry sector also isn't doing very well in amongst in amongst high interest rates and such as a result of um, financial markets of when you have high interest rates you tend to go into more traditional assets such as bonds and such as opposed to precious metals which tend to do better in a low interest rate environment because you need to seek additional kind of alternative investments as it were so yeah that's just a very interesting thing that I that I saw. Uh, finally, shipping giant Mayask has ordered um, up to 10 very large ammonia characters from South Korea's Hyundai Sambo Heavy Industries. Uh, Bogdan, do you want to talk on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, we know that we recently published a hydrogen transportation report and um, ammonia is something that will benefit from the green hydrogen industry that will decarbonize this way. And there'll be a lot, loads of it shipped around. So Merckx is just uh, ahead of the game, preparing for that. Very good to know. It's well, it's just nice to know that the shipping giants are um, actively trying to do something about the maritime kind of carbon problem. And ammonia, you said, is a uh, is one of the better routes for them to be taking right now, correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is uh, ammonia carriers, right? So it's not mm. the the ships themselves won't burn the ammonia. They, they could, but this is not. Oh, right. So this is um, just kind of... shipping ammonia from point A to B because there will be an increase in that, given that uh, green ammonia will most likely be produced wherever the hydrogen is cheapest. So, so it's LNG is... replacement and supplanting as opposed to shipping. Yeah, emissions. something like that. Something like My, that. Okay. My apologies. Well, on that, and uh, just the reminder that the LNG industry is quite rapidly going down the path, we'd like to thank you all for listening. We'll be back again next week for our final episode of The uh, Belief, and um, I'd like to see you all then, so thank you all for listening. <laughs>